The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go, and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to Children's Church, please join our volunteers by the Kids Zone sign. If it's your child's first time in Children's Church, please go with them so we can get them checked in. Good morning. I realize I spilled my first cup of water over everything in the first service, so we'll see how this goes. Uh, before we dive in, I want to acknowledge that because the story of the Good Samaritan is so ingrained in our culture, even if you're here and you don't consider yourself a Christian, you've probably heard that term, Good Samaritan. Uh, I want to acknowledge that it's really easy to hear this story and just kind of let it go in one ear and out the other. I do it myself sometimes. But if you'll stick with me, I think we'll hear that the parable of the Good Samaritan is at the same time harder than we remember, uh, but it's also more beautiful than we think. My hope is that you'll walk away with a deeper understanding of what it means to be good and just how good God is. So for the last two months or so, I've been working at a summer camp called Alpine. It's a boys camp in Minton, Alabama, if you're familiar with it. And I've been the kind of camp pastor, but I've also been teaching some guitar classes, which is really fun. Uh, but one of the classes, like the 10-year-old boys class, I asked, I said, hey guys, what songs do y'all want to learn this time? And it was hilarious. Like two of them kind of yelled out, Led Zeppelin. We want to learn Led Zeppelin songs. So I thought, awesome. I didn't know kids listen to Led Zeppelin. Uh, I thought it would be really fun to teach them like Whole Lot of Love and Black Dog and Cashmere, all those fun Led Zeppelin songs. But when I got my phone out and I was going through the chords and the lyrics to teach it to them, I quickly realized that I could not teach them Led Zeppelin songs because those words are horribly inappropriate for 10-year-old boys. (laughs) If you're like me, you just kinda, if you don't know the words to the song, you just kinda hum along or make up words. 
A lot of Led Zeppelin songs are just kind of hard to understand because he's singing such high pitch anyway. They're kind of gibberish anyway. But my point being that I've been listening to Led Zeppelin for most of my life, but never actually heard what they were saying until I kind of slowed down and paid up really close attention to it. Uh, so, <laughs> likewise, let's take the next 25 minutes to just kind of slow down and pay attention to what Jesus is really saying in this parable. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Um, you are a God who created everything and you sustain everything. You're over all and in all and through all, and yet you're good. And so would you help us to see you clearly in your word this morning? Help us to trust you. Help us to change where we need to change and help us to rest in you when we need to just rest. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this summer, you guys have been going through what the Apostle Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. And if you're not familiar with that or if you haven't been around, it's just kind of a list of character traits that the Bible says you will grow in if you're following Jesus. So it's in Galatians chapter 5, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And you're just going through all those. So we're just going to stick to goodness this morning. The one who follows Jesus will grow in goodness. What does that look like? What does that mean? And we're looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan because that's basically the question that the lawyer is asking Jesus. What is goodness? Like, how good do I have to be to be good with God? Uh, look back at verse 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when we see that term lawyer, um, you just need to think Old Testament professor. This is not like a trial lawyer or like, did you get caught in an injury? Call 857, whatever, whatever. Uh, this is just a, he's an expert in the Old Testament law. The lawyer is asking Jesus, hey, what's your definition of good? How good do I need to be? And Jesus knows this man is an expert in the law and he knows this man's heart. Uh, he tells him in verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer gives him a really straightforward answer that's just quoted directly from Deuteronomy. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. In other words, love God and love your neighbor. And if you've ever looked at the Ten Commandments like that, that's how it's broken up. The first four commandments talk about how we can love God. You shall have no other gods before you, no idols, don't take God's name in vain. And the last six are how we can love our neighbors. We don't lie, we don't steal, don't uh, sleep with someone else's spouse. That's the Ten Commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. And Jesus responds to him without an ounce of sarcasm. He says, yes, that's it. Do that and you're good. Love God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor just as much as you love yourself and you'll be good. Jesus isn't being snarky, uh, he's being literal. Because there's a big difference, isn't there, in just kind of a general love of God and in loving God with every ounce of your being and putting him before everything else. There's a big difference when you roll your trash can out in the morning and you see your neighbor and you smile and wave and you're really nice and also in treating that neighbor with the same care and love that you treat yourself with. The big difference. And maybe you hear all this talk about loving God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind, and it kind of weirds you out. Like maybe that sounds kind of like an obsessive, unhealthy thing to focus your ultimate desires and hopes and abilities and thoughts on one being. And for anyone else in the world, this, that would be really unhealthy. 
right? You've seen those relationships. Maybe you have been in one of those relationships where they're just obsessed with each other and everything is about the other person. And if you can barely kind of pull them apart for two seconds and go hang out with them separately, who do they want to talk about? <laughs> the, the person they're dating or the person they're with, right? Um, that, is, that is what they're doing is they just, they're loving that other person with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. And viewing from the outside, it seems pretty claustrophobic and unhealthy, doesn't it? But the beauty of God is that he is so good and he's so wise and he's so infinitely loving that not only is he worthy of our total affection and complete love, y'all, that's what we were made for. Right? Not only is loving God above all else healthy, it is necessary for you and I to flourish as human beings, to not pour our ultimate affection on created things, but on the creator himself. And it'll order everything else out if that's where we're doing it. And in our passage this morning, the lawyer asking Jesus this question, he thinks he's doing it, doesn't he? Uh, he sees no issue with the way he's living and relating to God and relating to others. Look back at verse 29. It says, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Put another way, how good is good enough, Jesus? And whether you're convinced of Christianity this morning or not, we all wanna be good, don't we? We all wanna feel like we're treating other people well and being a good person and being a good neighbor. The lawyer wants Jesus to give him these kind of specific boundaries. And so who he has to be good to, so he can kind of check it off and keep on going. And as he often does, Jesus answers this man's question with a story. Jesus tells a story about a man who walks from Jerusalem to Jericho, which you should, you should Google it sometime. It's a super dangerous road. It's like you start at the top of the mountain and you kind of go down and you wind around all these really steep cliffs. Uh, and then you just keep going down this really dusty, dirty place. Uh, it's basically like, you know, like the guild trail going up Lookout Mountain. Kind of like if that were like this beautiful lush green pathway with a nice little trolley going up overhead. If there's just nothing there, it's all dead. And there's like robbers and bandits hiding to attack you. Uh, and if Lookout Mountain were like this like nice, really calm, safe place with names like Fairyland Circle and Peter Pan Drive. Uh, but if it were like a really bad neighborhood, that's kind of what, what this is saying. This is a really dangerous road to take from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's rocky, twisty, turny, and there were bandits that wanted to attack you and take your stuff. So not only does the guy in the story get beat up, stripped naked, left for dead, but it's in a really bad neighborhood. But thankfully, three guys are walking past him. Uh, and we typically, when we think of the first two folks, we usually think of like, those are the bad guys. They're coming in. Uh, but culturally, they're very well respected. So just to put it in kind of modern day terms, the first man that comes by is a priest. This would be like on a Sunday morning, kind of early, a pastor is walking to church of a pretty big church. He's got 1,000, 1,500 people to go preach to. And he sees this man and he says, uh, I know this guy needs help, but I'm already running late and I've got to preach to 1,000 people. I mean, surely 1,000 people need my help more than this one guy. I'm sure someone else will come along and help him. I'm just gonna go on, and it goes by. And then verse 32 says that a Levite comes. And a Levite is basically like the super church member. They're very invested, they're very active. Maybe they're a community group leader. They are kind of getting stuff together for the community. They're very well thought of. Uh, maybe that's a leader or a prominent volunteer at a nonprofit. This person who the community also sees as a very good person uh, thinks to himself or herself, 
I am vital to the operation that's going on today. I spent weeks planning it, getting volunteers, kind of getting as many people around as we could. We've got tons of food. Without me, it's going to fall apart. I have to be there to kind of get this thing going and to make sure it goes well. I know I should help this person, but if I do, all these other people are going to suffer. I'm sure someone else will come and help. And he passes by. And again, many of us have read this story so often that we just immediately put the priest and the Levite into the bad category. But these are good people, and they're doing good things. A lot of us would fit into these categories in the church. And then a third man comes down the road, and it's a Samaritan. And when the original audience heard that it was a Samaritan was coming down the road, that's the guy who they would have thought, oh, this is the bad guy. This is the not good guy coming down. The Jewish people and the Samaritan people hated each other. And just, I'm assuming not everybody here loves history, but the quick 15-second history lesson of this is uh, the Assyrians came in and invaded Israel, and they took away like 70, 75% of the people, and they sent them into exile. And the people who are still left, the Israelites, uh, the Assyrians kind of put some other of their people down there, and they mixed them all together. So imagine people are getting married, they're having babies, they're going to different worship services, everything just gets all jumbled up. And so the Jewish people come back out of exile after a while, and they just, they look completely unrecognizable to the people that they, they left. And the Jewish people were, they're really kind, and they called them half-breeds to their face, and they didn't want anything to do with them. Uh, in Harry Potter terms, right, the Jewish people are the pure bloods, and the Samaritans are the mudbloods, if that's helpful for anybody else. Uh, these people hated each other, and it was socially acceptable to hate the other group of people. There was no one being like, oh, we, we should really love them and be kind and not speak ill of them. There's none of that. They just hated each other. Uh, and yet, what does verse 33 say about the Samaritan when he sees this Jewish man on death's door? Verse 33 says, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And after Jesus tells this lawyer the story about this guy who goes above and beyond caring for his enemy, and he asks him, hey, which of these three do you think proved to be a good neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? You can almost hear the lawyer kind of sigh and be like, yeah, it was, it was the guy who showed mercy. He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan is the hero in the story. He just says, it's, it's the one who showed mercy. What is Jesus saying here? I think this is the hardest part of the story. Jesus is saying that true goodness, being a good neighbor, will never be reasonable. Right? Loving your neighbor as yourself, gospel goodness, uh, will never fall into these neat and tidy categories. But on the other hand, hate and indifference can always be explained away. I mean, we are incredibly skilled at making sense of our hatred for another group of people, at coming up with reasons not to love others, to not be good to others. It always makes sense. Uh, whenever you look on TV and you see huge groups of people kind of getting rowdy, it's, it's almost always against something that they hate. You don't see a lot of people kind of rallying for things that they love. It's always, those are the enemies. We gotta make sure they don't get in power. We gotta make sure they're stopped. We can rationalize hate for an enemy. It's so much harder to rationalize love for an enemy, isn't it? When the Samaritan saw his enemy there bleeding and dying and naked, he had compassion on him. Uh, Tim Keller made a really good point. I heard this a while back and it's just still convicting me. He said, there's no such thing as people who are worthy and people who are unworthy of your serving love. There's no such thing as people who are worthy and people who are unworthy of you and I being good to them. 
You know, instead of using like this lovable victim, someone who would be easy to love and have compassion on, Jesus uses a man who would be socially acceptable to hate, and he makes him the hero of the story. This kind of love, this kind of goodness does not make sense, does it? And that's the point. When the world looks on and sees the church loving people that it should hate, that's incredibly powerful. But I, I love this church. I, we've been a part of this church since like last fall. I miss this church. I miss being here, worshiping with y'all. Uh, this is a really fun place to get plugged into. And there's like literally hundreds of y'all that I'm excited to get to know <laughs> over the couple years. That's a rare thing for a church. Um, it's attractive when people look on and see a church of people who like being around each other and they have a fun time together. I don't want to discount that at all. I think that's why restoration has grown so quickly because they're just fun, good people who love Jesus here. It's a great combination. But can you imagine what it would be like if you're an outsider and you look in and you see a church that is intentionally loving people who hate them? I'm not saying we don't do that, but just how powerful that would be to see a church who is just known by its love for its enemies. I know I do a terrible job of this. I mean, I can count on one hand the people who have like truly wronged me in life. It's really hard to forgive them. It's even harder to love them and show them compassion. I don't want to be like the Samaritan, right? Who sees his enemy and has compassion. And what else does he do? He moves towards him. He misses whatever appointment he was going to. He touches him. He uses his own resource to bind up this guy's wounds. And in verse 34, it says, Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. In other words, he gave him the keys to his car and he paid for his Airbnb. And here's the kicker is verse 35. It says, And the next day he took out two denarii, that's like two days wages, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you, more you spend, I will repay you when he comes back. And he says, Whatever it takes to heal this man, do it and I'll pay for it. Loving your neighbor, true goodness, looks like someone who has compassion on an enemy, who allows their schedule to be wrecked by their enemy, who gives up money and time and resources for their enemy, who is willing to do whatever it takes to bring healing for their enemy. You know, and if you hear this and you feel like a crushing weight has been placed on your shoulders, I'm right there with you. Uh, but y'all, however imperfectly we can live this out, any shred of goodness that we can show to this world, loving our enemies, that's a glimpse of God's heart that we get to experience and that we get to show out to the world. Not so they see it and say, oh, look at you guys, you're doing so, such good things, but so that others will see it and they'll see Jesus and they'll see people following Jesus who are being good to their enemies. And as one author put it, that they'll be wonderfully confused by that. That same author, he writes, God longs for the world to see his heart through the actions of his people. God longs for the world to see his tenderness, his forgiveness, his generosity, and his grace through the actions of his people. If you're like me, when, whenever we read the story of the Good Samaritan, this is kind of how our thought process goes. We think, ah, yeah, you're right, Jesus. I am like those first two guys, the kind of churchy folks who saw the guy in need and they passed by. I do a lot of good things, but I cannot forget to help the poor and the marginalized. You're right, I need to do a better job of caring for the poor and for caring those in need. I'll try harder. I'll start carrying around crackers and water in my car and handing out to, to homeless people. And that isn't a bad thing. I mean, the way Jesus tells us the story, that's the way we're supposed to feel. We're supposed to identify with those first two people. 
He also wants us to identify with the Samaritan, someone who goes out of his way at great cost to himself to love someone who is helpless. And that's good, but that's often where we stop, isn't it? That's pretty much what we think about when we think about the good Samaritan. Love your enemies, don't neglect those people in need. But what is Jesus actually saying in this parable? He tells us about a good hero that has limitless love for his enemy. That's the point of this parable. Uh, An enemy who had no hope of saving himself. Y'all, we are not the good Samaritan in this story, as much as we'd like to be. We are the broken, helpless, dying ones who are toast because of our own sin and because of the sin that has been done to us. Jesus is the good hero who at infinite cost to himself came to his enemies, he emptied himself of his riches, and as Paul says in Philippians 2, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And if you follow Jesus this morning, you and I are called to sacrificial love, absolutely. But the only way that that does not become this crushing burden is if you look to Jesus, God the Son who gave up everything, who was beaten, stripped naked, nailed to a cross, put in a grave, all so that he could make his enemies his friends. Jesus joyfully took on the punishment that you and I deserve so that through his life, death, and resurrection, your wounds are healed, like the deep wounds in you that no amount of rest and self-care can heal. The rift between you and God is obliterated because of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Let me end with quoting from the hymn we sang earlier. It's one of my favorites from Before the Throne. It says, Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. You know, if you're here and you don't know what you believe, maybe you're curious, you're investigating, maybe you were brought hell against your will, please consider that an invitation. Uh, to trust in the God who loves you and the God who is always good to you. Amen? Let me pray. Father, you are good to us. We thank you that your love for us doesn't depend on how well we love others or how good we are. Uh, If it did, we'd be toast and we wouldn't be here. But you love us despite ourselves. You love us to make us lovely and to heal us. And so we ask that you would press that truth into us, just your goodness and your mercy. For those who don't know what they believe, uh, would you press that truth into them and let this church gather around people to help uh, your truth be known. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Heal us. And so we ask that you would press that truth into us, just your goodness and your mercy. For those who don't know what they believe, uh, would you press that truth into them and let this church gather around people to help uh, your truth be known. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.